Hi, I'm Bernard Leong and you may know me as the executive who has used the Chinese version of WeChat and in the, my spare time, I want to know the major improvements from WeChat 7.0 coming from Tencent. You're listening to Analyze Asia, the weekly podcast dedicated to business, technology and media in Asia. And today, in the first episode out of 300, 301, I have Matthew Brennan, co-founder of China China and host of China Tech Talk. Welcome, Matthew. And it's great to have you back here again. Yeah, great to be back, Bernard. Thanks for having me again. It seems that this couple of days, there's a lot of things happening. But before we get to some of these quick discussions, since our last conversation, what have you been up to? Recently, just in the past few days, I've been at the Big Tencent Conference. I'm still here. I'm in Kunming recording today in Yunnan province. It's really, really nice, actually. I can't believe in 15 years, I never made it down to Kunming because it's quite famous. You know, all Chinese know Kunming. Four seasons are all like spring, right? But it is actually really, really nice. And the conference was really quite interesting. You know, we might be covering a bit later on, but it's very clear that Tencent is acting upon their new direction. So what are the interesting things you have seen in the last one, two days in the conference? I think a couple of the highlights for me personally was the smart retail solutions. I found that super interesting. I didn't realize how advanced it had already become in terms of extracting data from a typical retail store and some of the systems they have in place already utilizing facial recognition utilizing like hidden store cameras which analyze you know how long someone is looking at different products which ones they picked up heat maps of where activity is taking in the place in the store through the facial recognition they can estimate your age your gender your mood they got conversion funnels there of like how people going past the store, foot traffic, through to people who enter the store, through to people who pick up things or show interest, through to people who actually purchase, you know. So it's really exactly like what you'd expect with e-commerce, actually. You know, the kind of data that online e-commerce players have been accustomed to having for years, but we never really had offline. Now we actually have it offline and you can actually link those two data sets together and then create a very holistic picture of the consumer, both you know connecting online and offline. So I think for brands, that's really, really exciting. Obviously, new retail, smart retail is something that a lot of people have been talking about over the past two, three years in China. Yeah, it's very impressive what they've been able to do. So this particular Tencent conference, is it just a developers type conference or is it a conference more targeted to brands and partners out there? Right. Well, the actual focus is quite clearly cloud services and B2B. There is some, but there's very little about games and uh, there's very little about social. It's all about, you know, cloud services for vertical industries, whether that's education, finance, retail, tourism or government services you know all these different verticals and digitalization assistant is the new positioning of of tencent so they're positioning themselves as you know not competing with anyone just helping fast track china's digitalization which is you know super in line with what the government wants which is always a good thing it puts the wind behind your back in china but I think it's also smart, you know, Tencent, if we take retail, for example, there was a really great piece from Bloomberg recently about the sort of different positioning of Microsoft Cloud in the States compared to Amazon and how for Microsoft, they sort of stress that, you know, as a retailer, do you really want to put your data on Amazon Clouds? Like that's kind of, you're giving your data, your crown jewels to your competitor. I think Tencent in terms of retail has a sort of like similar 
thing going on where although Alibaba with AliCloud is leading the market as a retailer, I would you know be quite hesitant to use AliCloud for you know putting all that important stuff. So Tencent is the number two player in cloud, and they also quite strong obviously in cloud services for gaming. I think that's where the bulk of their success has been to date. But they're looking at you know all different verticals as well and. They said on the earnings call a couple of days ago, you know, Martin Lau was saying quite clearly that the strategy was to pick one or two partners and work together with them very closely to build case studies. And actually, that's why the conference was in Yunnan was because one of the case studies that they thought was quite a big success was working with the Yunnan Tourism Board to digitalize the tourism experience in that province. And so once they've built up that successful case study, you know, then hopefully they can use that later on to get other clients on board. Because with these other industries, you know, more traditional industries, not sort of tech focused or internet focused, people tend to be a bit cautious, right? You want to know that something's actually going to work before you try it out. But from Tencent's perspective, they can't do this with every partner because it just doesn't scale. It's very labor intensive. So you work with one or two partners in an industry to build you know, showcases and you work out what actually this industry, what works and what doesn't and what's needed. And then later on, you work out how to make products out of that, You know, how to make SaaS services potentially. Well, SaaS doesn't seem to be as popular in China as it is in the States. You know, I'm still learning about all the different levels here, but, you know, there's platform as a service, software as a service, you know, infrastructure as a service, all these different layers when it comes to cloud services. And for China, SaaS is nowhere near as developed as it is in the States. They're looking at a lot of its, you know, more basic infrastructure as a service type things. I'll get back to you on that later because I have some questions on WeChat, the enterprise version. But just a quick one, this couple of days, the US have declared that Huawei will be banned and then immediately there is ripple effects or what I call domino effects where Google and Arm cutting access to Huawei. I think the first question I have because I saw mm. both John and yourself have actually done a very quick take on the whole event through yeah. your China Tech podcast. What are your thoughts so far? Yeah, we did a hot take because we just both felt it was so important. What's happening with Huawei right now is kind of unprecedented and is, I would say, a, a very big escalation of the trade war, which is now, I would say, is a cold war. And I think we'll look back on May 2019 as being a turning point in the relations between China and the States. And Huawei's at the center of this, and it seems to be, like you just mentioned, it's not only Google that's retracting from them, now it's Arm from the UK, not even a US company, right? Arm's uh, you know, one of the few British big giants in tech. And so it's very likely we'll see more announcements from other players in the next few days or weeks. And uh, so it's really touch and go at the moment. We have to see how things develop. But as of recording, it doesn't look good for Huawei. You know, I'm actually a Huawei user. The phone I use is a Huawei phone, and that's not an advert for Huawei by any means. <laughs> you know, I just, I do think their phones are quite good, but I actually use Android because China's an Android market, right? It's 80% plus Android. So I want my user experience and the apps and the way that I use my phone to be close to how the normal people in China is. I think it helps me understand things a bit better. And so that's why I use Android and, and Huawei is just the biggest one. But Given all these announcements, I might have to change my phone. You know, I mean, that's pretty typical of the situation I think a lot of Huawei users will be facing, perhaps if things play out the way that it's looking right now. But I mean, 
given that Chinese market is itself an ecosystem, I mean, they announced that they have a new operating system and probably it's a fork of Android. And the cutoff is actually to the new technology that's coming out, meaning that Google is just going to stop providing new technologies, but the old ones are still there. Um, I think it's going to be the same case. My question would be, how does it take to actually get Huawei even having problems in its own Chinese market? I think that's the question, right? Because Hmm. the smartphone sales where it really matters to them is actually the Chinese market, not outside of Chinese market. Well, you know, Huawei is very big in Europe. You know, when I go back to UK or I was in France earlier this year, you know, Eastern Europe as well, it's pretty big all across, obviously not so big in the States. But you forget, they do have decent market share outside China and Europe's a very lucrative sort of space. And so we will hit them for sure. But having said that, you're correct. You know, the majority of their users are in China and uh, they're more protected in China from software issues, given that certainly all the apps and services are already tailored to that market and built by themselves. And so every handset manufacturer in China builds their own flavor of Android and, you know, things work differently there. So Google Play is is really just not an issue. But I'm thinking, you know, like we said with ARM, there just could be more more surprises to come, I feel. I don't think it's just ARM and Google. There'll be more announcements, I guess. Just a very quick one. Recently, I had a meeting with a pretty well-known entrepreneur in Shenzhen. And what he told me is that the officials all use Huawei, only the low-level bureaucrats uses iPhone. Is that true? (laughs) That I don't know. I don't know. What we do know is that Ren Jinfei's daughter, who's currently in Canada, being under house arrest, does own several iPhones. (laughs) I remember seeing that on one of the news reports of the equipment she had on her. Like She had several phones, and most of them were actually Apple devices. I think she had an iPad as well, if I remember correctly. But regardless, we know overall China is an Android market. And I can speak from personal experience with, say, like the consumers, you know, who I know best, say, like um, people in my in my own family, which are actually traditionally all iPhone users, but several of them have switched over to Huawei in the past year. So I think, you know, Huawei phones are actually quite good and well respected in China and the brand this perception of quality is getting closer and closer to Apple. Okay. So I think given that this is an ongoing thing, we are going to monitor this. And today, I think I got you here to talk about both Tencent's Q1 2019 earnings and also WeChat 7.0. I think one of the things that I know is a bit old news about WeChat 7.0, because I think yourself, Rayma, and a couple others have covered it pretty extensively during the launch. So what I wanted to do was to wait for a period of time to see what things are going so that we can understand how WeChat 7.0 is actually affecting the Chinese market itself. But I think I will start off with the quarterly earnings. Tencent has recently released their Q1 earnings for 2019. What are the key highlights for the company? Sure. I think the recent quarter, the biggest news was the new revenue segment. So they've broken out fintech and B2B services, which is broadly well received to get you know more clarity there in terms of where the revenue is coming from to be honest though you know we already knew that the other segment the lion's share of that was payments and with a little bit cloud so for the people who've been following it closely we already knew 
roughly how much of that segment was attributed to those parts. So it didn't really tell me anything or I imagine any of the analysts uh, anything new. But as a sort of indicator of like, this is the future of the company, I think it's important that they actually broke that out and attributed it. You know, having all of the other segment for Tencent has just grown to like where it was a quarter of the total revenue, which was a little bit silly, really. So that was a good move. And again, it's all about cloud services is the focus. You know, they let us know that cloud right now is losing money on an operational basis. And in the Q&A session, I think, you know, the most interesting questions were around that. I've already talked about the strategy of creating showcases, which they delved into. But also, you know, they were quite clear that at the moment, it seems to be, you know, early stage for cloud in China. And a lot of companies recognize that consumers are online and technology can help them become more efficient. But the problem is how to make that transformation and so they're trying to work that out with different showcases and working closely with different partners for different industries right now so given that it's a weak quarter how will tencent move forward in the next few quarters one big issue now is related to gaming is that they are at the mercy of the regulators in getting approvals every time i think when the regulator gives approval to a game i'm pretty believe that there must be some correlation that their shares will move so where do you think they will go from there well, I think gaming, I'm actually quite positive about gaming, to be honest. I think the worst is over. You know, we're over the hill there. The monetization licenses for gaming has started up again, and the pace seems to be increasing. And Tencent Games and NetEase Games are in there. And we've even seen their, their big title, the PUBG Mobile. They've been able to release a version of it under a different name. I've played the new version to check it out myself, and I can tell you that Yes, it's got a different name. Yes, it's got a lot of cosmetic changes, but the core gameplay is exactly the same. It's the same game with a new skin, and I expect it to do quite well. And the early indicators are that it is doing quite well. So that's really great news for gaming. Obviously, things won't be as good as they were before in terms of regulation, but as I've mentioned a couple of times before, heavy regulation plays into the sort of duopoly that we have already with Tencent and NetEase in the market owning something like 70%, I think, of the entire market is attributed to those two players. So heavy regulation, lots of rules, it sort of solidifies that. And as long as the monetization can still happen, the sort of fundamentals on gaming are still quite strong in the market uh, when we look at user numbers. There's one factor, if you wanted to be negative about it, I think you could say that in the long term, for the China market, you know, we have a demographic issue, right? So China's aging, it's aging fast, and gamers tend to be young people. So if that's sort of mid to long term issue that we need to be aware of in gaming, that will certainly slow down growth. I think there's also recently been a reorganization in Tencent. What are the key personnel changes? Yeah, there's a reorganization of the business groups. And so they merged a couple of them and they introduced some new ones. So there's one group that's totally dedicated to B2B services that's headed up by Dawson Tong. Those guys were front and center at the conference yesterday for both days, actually. In terms of high-level management, it's actually very, very stable. It's almost too stable. I think if you want to criticize, I think there has been criticism of Tencent, you know, not letting enough young blood up through the ranks in the company because the higher management staff has really not changed that much in the last, you know, five years or so. One of the few rising stars is Stephen Ma in the gaming division under Mark Rand. So 
he has definitely been singled out by a lot of people as someone who is performing very well and, and could be, you know, going even further. And then, as I mentioned before, for the cloud and B2B services, Dustin Tong has really stepped up and seemingly become a much more important high-level manager because, you know, he was really uh, the guy that headed up cloud services early on in Tencent and spoke up and said, you know, this is important. We need to do this at an early time where, Perhaps other people didn't see it as very strategic. And so it seems like that decision that he made many years ago to go in on cloud has paid off very, very well. And, you know, he's being rewarded with more responsibility because of that. And WeChat will stay separate by itself. Oh, sure. You know, WeChat's still Alan Jung's kingdom and that's not going to change. Mm. So that comes to the conversation on WeChat 7.0. So during this year's conference, Alan Zhang, the person in charge of WeChat, gave a four-hour keynote. And you did an excellent summary of the event. So what are the key messages that he has delivered? Sure. I mean, that was a while back. Uh, that was in January, I think, because uh, I was at the conference. I saw it live. It was, yeah, four hours. It was really tough standing up through that. <laughs> so I was right at the front. But he rambled a lot. You know, Alan's not a good public speaker. He speaks very slowly. The main thing about it was he was just trying to explain some of the details and some of the reasons why WeChat does things the way they do. And for myself, a lot of it I knew already, but I think for a lot of people, it kind of shone some light on perhaps some of the details in the China market, things they get criticized for. At one point, you know, he mentioned, you know, every time we make a change to WeChat, we get something like 100 million people complain. It was kind of a joke, but it was kind of like a grumble as well that, you know, people sort of don't trust them that they know what they're doing when that's kind of ridiculous, you know, given their success. He put out some very interesting stats on moments usage much higher than people expected. You know, I think it was 700 million daily active users, something like that, which I didn't think it would be that high. Certainly, you know, that's a very impressive number. I think partially that was to allay the sort of general consensus among the sort of tech elite or industry insiders who sort of feel that the newsfeed on WeChat at moments is kind of perhaps dying. People are using it less and less. That seems to be the consensus amongst a lot of like industry people. But actually, the reality is that amongst the vast, vast population of Chinese internet users, you know, 800 million internet users, most people are still using that. And it's still an extremely popular and, and number one in terms of daily active users for any newsfeed in China by far. That was interesting, given there's been so much negative talk amongst Chinese industry observers and experts, shall we say, that actually the reality of the situation is quite different. So it was an interesting talk, but I think a lot of it was, you know, very detail orientated about sort of the history. He gave some details on like the history of when they started off, you know, had a very small team, just 10 engineers. A couple of them were just straight out of university. All of them were Symbian developers, you know, and I think they had one iOS developer when they started and uh, something like that. So uh, he gave, a, you know, some interesting color there to like how they actually began as well. Hmm. He's kind of talking about the history and then he proceeds to explain what they have been doing. So it's pretty nuanced in that sense. But this was where I wanted to get you on to talk a little bit more. What is WeChat 7.0 and what are the biggest changes for the app as compared to its past versions? Right, so obviously seven some point oh version for WeChat is a big deal. <laughs> the app is eight years old now, started in two thousand eleven, January, and 
since then you know we've only got up to 7.0 actually 6.0 i think was something like three or four years ago and since 6.0 they've been iterating iterating so like when it gets to a, a new 7.0 version you think it would be a huge deal and a complete revamp well not really uh <laughs> it was a complete visual revamp the design of the application has changed and been upgraded i think it's overall quite nice but there was just two big changes really one was to the content ecosystem for official accounts where they introduced a social content recommendation newsfeed called CaniCan. well CaniCan means look take a look it's on the discovery tab and it's actually a direct competitor to ByteDance's Totiao so Totiao has been massively successful it's a news aggregation application and the reason it's successful is because it's algorithm based content recommendation feed which up until recently WeChat didn't have any algorithms behind their main news feed uh, moments and still today it doesn't have algorithms behind it to recommend content so CaniCan was a relatively new feature introduced to actually compete in the sort of algorithmic newsfeed space. But then they added a second feed onto it, which was one based around manual social recommendations. So it's quite unique. There's no real equivalent of it that I can think of outside China. But essentially, it means that when you read an article on WeChat, at the bottom, you can tap a little button which says, you know, how can, right? It looks good. This is something that was worth reading. And then it will appear on that social recommendation newsfeed. And what that means is when you go into that feed, it's just purely a feed of articles, no videos, no pictures, just articles. And every single article has been recommended by one of your contacts. So quite an interesting way to curate content. And uh, actually, I think it's been quite successful. I personally use it and find it quite useful. And I know a lot of other people who have also said the same thing. And I can see from the content that's been shared on there that it is being used. So that's one thing. And then the second big change was the stories, WeChat stories. So the stories format that's from Snapchat originally, also now in many different products. Instagram is probably the, the most famous today. And the WeChat version is you know kind of similar format, full screen video, very short. And the main entry point for discovering this content is on the moment's newsfeed at the top. So again, quite similar to how it is on Instagram, let's say. But I don't think overall it's been as successful. Still today, I don't see too many people use it beyond my Tencent friends. <laughs> so usually when I see content in there, all of the Tencent people are using it. But non-Tencent people, you know, is much less. And uh, personally, I use it a little bit, but I haven't found it very compelling. And uh, it's not uncontroversial to say, you know, it hasn't really taken off well yet. So that's surprising because the stories format has been a big success across many different products you know, from snapchat to instagram to facebook and now you know it's also in weibo as well and here in china so it's interesting that it hasn't actually been very successful to date is it also because the philosophy behind wechat is very different from how the other social apps work the way how ellen jung always talks about wechat is that it's like a utility it's like a swiss yes. army knife is allowed to get into services. I think that he has stressed this over and over and over again. I think that is a question that always makes me think about how he's thinking of the product. I mean, think about something like stories. Is that also a direct way that he's answering to critics saying that this is how I'm going to take on something like Douyin or TikTok? Yeah. 
I think there's a certain degree of truth in that, that it actually doesn't really fit very well with the actual product philosophy of Alan Jung, in my estimation. And it does feel a bit tacked on. And many people, when it was released, said that this new feature didn't feel very WeChat-like. It felt very Western, is what a lot of Chinese observers, industry people said. And when they mean Western, they mean Instagram kind of style. It feels like something from Snapchat or Instagram that's been you know, added on to WeChat. I think that's a fair assessment. To me, it also feels a little bit strange, not quite in line with what Alan Jung usually does. And it's also fair to say that WeChat has been fairly late on video and not really embracing the video trend that, you know, a platform like Facebook has gone heavily into video for a long time now. And on their news feeds, it's very video centric. But WeChat has stayed relatively conservative in terms of video content to date. So it is a move in that direction. But, you know, we'd say this is a 7.0 version. You'd expect them to be rolling out something quite big and significant. But I don't think this is it. Do you feel that they have started to embed things like AI into WeChat 7.0? What I mean is they started putting technologies that are more embedded within the app itself rather than trying to flash them out and say, we have AI inside, we have all these things inside. Actually, WeChat 7.0 has a really big infrastructure upgrade other than the UI switch. Sure. I mean, yeah, constantly iterating on adding things like different forms of AI into the experience, whether that's through WeChat Search, which they're constantly upgrading and experimenting with new stuff on Search. And so the Search experience in WeChat has come a long, long way, I think, from where it started in just a few years. I think it still can go much further. But yeah, there's a lot of sort of optimization with algorithms and AI there. In terms of actual speech recognition, it can transcribe Chinese speech and English speech into written form and written form into speech as well, I think. The speech into written form I use quite often. And so that's been a useful upgrade that they introduced less than half a year ago, I think. So, you know, these aren't big announcements, but it's more sort of about constant optimization. I think the focus of the team is mostly still on mini programs, the mini program ecosystem, and constantly iterating on that, adding new features and functionality in order to make that the best experience it can for developers. So they're really focusing on building the developer ecosystem and making development of mini programs as easy as possible. Uh, they've even got a saying in the team that, you know, we chat many programs, it should be so easy that a child can develop one. That's the ultimate goal. Whether they actually get there or not is another thing. But they're certainly you know, aiming to build out educational courses. They're working with universities to build out mini programs as sort of courses that students will learn as a sort of basic entry level programming. And then they're working with Tencent Cloud to build out cloud based services where you can actually build your mini program in the Tencent cloud directly and you don't even have to set up your own servers it's all automated and so it's just kind of a drag and drop interface they have plugins as well so they're trying to get it so that you can literally build a mini program in minutes that's what they claim and I think Alipay also has their version of mini programs and they also make that claim as well that you can build mini programs for Alipay in literally minutes if it's a you know a simple e-commerce interface let's say yeah, that's certainly still a big, big part of their focus right now in 2019. How are WeChat 7.0 responding to their potential 
competition, for example, whether it's bike dance or Alibaba? Yeah, so with regard to bike dance, I think we've covered the main part, which is the new news feed, which competes with Totiao. Like I say, I think that has been quite successful. It still, you know, will grow in terms of popularity, but I think it's off to a good start. In terms of competing with Alibaba, I think the mini programs is the way they're doing that because a big part of it's all about e-commerce and transactions. And very recently, we've seen they've been iterating quite a lot on another news feed, which right now is quite hidden. It's called Hao uh, Chen, which means kind of like good products or good objects. <laughs> I can't translate it very well into English, uh, circle. They'll come up with a completely different name when they do announce it in English properly. But it's a social purchase recommendation news feed. So it's going to be a feed that's just full of recommendations of things that you've bought or things that you want to buy. And the recommendation of those products comes from all of the mini programs, which basically every brand has now. So you can link up all of those product data together into one feed and recommend the products that you've bought to your social network. So interesting concept, still very early days, but it's something they've been working on for about at least half a year now. And it's slowly gaining more traction. They're slowly giving it more and more traffic. And I think eventually they'll open it up to all users and, and push it out properly to everyone at some point. But that is directly competing with Alibaba, right? And that's always been the goal with many programs to create a user experience that's of the same level as Taobao in terms of ease of purchase and customer service, all of these things that everyone in China is used to when they buy things on Alibaba. So one thing I want to talk about is WeChat for Enterprise. I've actually visited a medium level tech company in Guangzhou and I saw them deploying WeChat for Enterprise. So what surprised me was that you can actually do a lot of things with WeChat for Enterprise. For example, you could do reimbursements, leave, booking of conference rooms. It's very similar to what Slack and some of these other tools are doing in the workplace. I'm just curious, there seems to be a shift in the way how WeChat is also splitting your personal and work life. Do you see that is actually gaining traction or is it just like the hidden story that people don't talk about? And of course, the Western media is always talking about WeChat more from the consumer point of view, but not actually on the enterprise, which is also the underlying force that driving them towards the enterprise with cloud services as well. Yep, very good points. WeChat Enterprise doesn't get talked about that much in Western media and analysis. It's something that's been around for a good few years now. And it's been constantly upgraded over time. And today it's number two in the market, right? So DingTalk is from Alibaba and they are leading the enterprise messaging space in China. And they got quite a substantial lead over WeChat Enterprise version, which to some degree is surprising because WeChat Enterprise does have a huge advantage and that's it links together with WeChat. And WeChat is where all the customers are. So as a business, if you want to reach out to customers for salespeople or business development people and do that in an enterprise messaging sort of environment, then WeChat has a humongous advantage over all of the competitors. And you would think that that advantage would be compelling enough that it would be leading the market, but it's not. I think that's you know, a couple of reasons. One, you know, Alibaba is better at doing B2B sales traditionally. They're a company that started off with B2B. It's in their blood and Tencent is very much a 
to see focused companies. So they're having to learn how to do all this stuff right now. I think also Ding Talk started off earlier. It was originally a pivot from the original Liwang app, which was a competitor to WeChat. So Liwang was the app that Alibaba brought out in 2012, 2013, quite late actually, to try and compete with WeChat when they realized that WeChat was getting far too important and they needed to make some efforts to try and counter it. But it completely failed and then the team pivoted into enterprise messaging. But they seem to have been quite successful in, after that pivot and they've got a lead in this market, which comes down to another fact actually, which is many observers have said, WeChat Enterprise follows WeChat in the sort of logic behind sender and receiver of information and that logic is that their sender and receiver are of equal importance and it also protects the receiver's privacy quite a lot actually and you'll see that in wechat if you send a message to someone actually there's no notification of whether that message has been received or not and there's no notification of you know has that message been successfully sent or not and that's actually quite unusual in terms of messaging apps i think you can think of all of the major messaging apps in the world they all have little confirmations on the messages if you use whatsapp for example you're definitely going to see a little tick next door to the message one when it's been sent and one when it's been seen so you know the status of the receiver you know did they get your message have they seen it but you don't have this on wechat and that's a very deliberate product choice made by Alan Jung and it's about focusing on the privacy of the receiver as well but when we take this logic over into the enterprise environment managers don't like that right they want to know have their employees seen the message and they want to know where their employees are even right they want to check their location and so DingTalk allows this it has a logic very favorable towards managers uh, so I've heard a lot of teams that use DingTalk, the actual employees uh, often grumble about it. They kind of don't like the <laughs> don't like the app at all. Managers love it, right? And managers are the ones who are making the decision on what software is being used. So that's a really important distinction between the two players in the market. And I've actually seen Alibaba's DingTalk as well. I, I like the app and even thinking about when I was in SingPost, whether to actually implement it for our use as well. So does WeChat 7.0 foreshadow a shift in business models for the messaging app? No, not really. I think WeChat 7.0 is business as usual for WeChat. And recently, it's not been that WeChat's made any big moves. It's just a rather less sensational case of constant iteration. And if there is something big coming up, it's probably this new social purchase recommendation newsfeed, which if it is successful, could be, you know, quite a big thing for e-commerce on WeChat. But we'll have to see. It's by no means guaranteed that this will actually be a success or not. Apart from that, yeah, I mean, this is my main criticism of the uh, WeChat team right now. And I think I'm not alone in saying this, that I don't see any big vision for where the app's going to go in the next few years. We do hear announcements, you know, even just the last few days at the Tencent conference, they announced, okay, we're building a version of WeChat for cars, you know, a voice activated version of WeChat for drivers. That's nice. It sounds great, but I think it's still going to be very, very niche. And by no means is it going to be something that a lot of people are using in the next you know, year to two years. It's more of a long-term thing. And I think what actually happens in terms of communication devices or tools for 
the autonomous car environment is still a long way away. So we don't know what's actually going to happen. And between now and then, 5G is going to become ubiquitous uh, and that will probably change a lot of the assumptions we have about these things and of course there's ar and vr well more ar that's actually going to potentially disrupt mobile somewhere along the line as well so yeah it's difficult to see where the team's going to take things in terms of like making a big move perhaps it's just the case of you know constant iteration which isn't as sensational and is a little bit boring if you're writing about it from a media standpoint but it doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing mm. it dawns on me just now when you say that even though there were challenges and there are a lot of media hype about all the other competitors coming up which are still retaining its crown as the top it reminds me a bit of facebook i mean there's a whole delete facebook movement going on by tech pundits but actually if you look carefully at their quarterly earnings and you look at their audience numbers in places like asia pacific it is still growing yes it just means that people don't really care about what's going on. Yeah, totally. I mean, the media always hypes up. So there's been this year several so-called WeChat killers or competitors to WeChat. The only one that had any kind of chance to make any kind of dent was the ByteDance one. It was Dorshan, simply because Dorshan is integrated heavily with ByteDance's flagship video, the China version of TikTok. So that gave it access to a humongous amount of daily active users. But even that application, you know, we haven't heard anything since its big announcement. We know that over Spring Festival, it gained something like four or five million users temporarily and lost most of those very, very quickly. Mm. So it's not an app that's making big waves by any means. And that's with substantial amounts of traffic. So uh, I think it's very unrealistic to think that any app's going to come along and cut into WeChat's market, despite what the media tells you, yeah. just not going to happen. <laughs> so, And you're right to compare it with Facebook. I mean, that's a good comparison that we often say that there's a lot of criticism of Facebook and there's article after article with sensationalist exposés about what's happening. And, and it sounds very serious, but actually the business is doing fine. And uh, for Tencent, you know, there is one cloud on the horizon that I want to caveat this whole thing with. We've touched upon it a little bit earlier in the episode, which is the Huawei issue. And uh, I think we're going to see that what's happened to Huawei recently in being singled out as a Chinese company and coming under intense pressure from the United States in terms of regulation will probably happen to other Chinese companies. We also saw ZTE earlier, you know, had a situation that was very, very serious and they backtracked on that. But it's not beyond the realms of possibility that Tencent at some point could come under fire and particularly WeChat could come under fire given that it's a Chinese application, given that Chinese tech companies are increasingly coming under scrutiny and, you know, the consensus in Washington and in the States in general is turning against the big giants from China. So we will just get the great firewall of the US then. Because if they ban all the Chinese apps, the only people who could use both sides is the people like me who's sitting in Singapore. Right. I mean, it sounds crazy, but I don't think it's beyond the realm of possibility that, you know, they would ban Chinese apps like WeChat from the US market. You know, we're not there today. And it sounds crazy to be talking about it, but yeah. It's interesting you say that because I just had a Twitter banter with Ben Thompson over the internet about this. I think, yes, it is true that the US have not banned a lot of things from China, but I think that 
underlying, they have been using things like certification processes to actually block the Chinese companies from entering, even acquisitions as well. So it's just a way of showing whether you're just explicitly banning like the way how the Chinese doing, which is the heavy handed approach and say, Facebook, Google, you cannot come in. Whereas they are just doing it in a very soft power way. Like, oh, you didn't pass this government regulation. You can't do this. So it's just another way of banning it. To me, this whole trade war is just about geopolitical power play between both China and US and really nothing much. I mean, it affects us, the Thai people, but, you know, we just move on with innovation, whether we like it or not. Right. I mean, I'm sure the listeners are very familiar with what Western media is saying. I can speak to, you know, living in China, I can tell you Chinese media, obviously what they're saying is very different. And I see both sides and uh, I actually feel, you know, there's an element of truth in both arguments and uh, the Chinese side, they're much more cynical about it. You know, they see the whole thing as just essentially a power play and everything, you know, is kind of an excuse. The real driving factor behind this is that the States is uh, kind of scared of the rise of China and wants to pull them back and pin them down in terms of development. I don't think that's totally true, but I think there is an element of truth in it. But having said that, you know, what the US media says, you know, there's also definitely elements of truth there. So like I say, I see both sides. I don't 100% agree with both arguments by any means. I think there's many factors at play actually here. So it's very difficult to pick out the ones that are driving it mostly. And I don't profess myself to be an expert in politics. In fact, you know, I much prefer talking about the technology and making everything political is, you know, unfortunate in my viewpoint. I totally agree with you. So that comes to the closing. Matthew, many thanks for coming on the show and talk about WeChat 7.0 and where all these things are going. So lastly, I want to ask you, can you recommend any book, movie, podcast or something that has made an impact to your work and personal life? Yeah, I think uh, before I've mostly recommended books, this time I feel I could recommend a podcast, but it might be a little bit unusual one because it's actually a Chinese language podcast. It's called Feng Tou Quan. I discovered it recently and I've just been listening to episode after episode. I find it fascinating. It's two Chinese VCs who are actually very international. Both have spent time in the States and in Europe quite a bit. And it's very interesting to hear them. They talk a lot about what's happening in the Valley, but it's a very Chinese perspective, but a very well-informed one. And then, of course, they also talk about, you know, what's happening in China. Some of the conversations and analysis on it are, I think, really excellent and of a level you'd expect, you know, from something like maybe A16Z in the States. Wow. Yeah, but obviously it's a very different viewpoint. You know, that's what I enjoy is the mixture of the Chinese and the sort of Western viewpoints in one podcast. But unfortunately for most of our listeners, it's in Chinese. But I'm sure there are actually listeners who do speak Chinese. And for those who do, definitely I would recommend checking it out. And please send me the link because I can listen to Chinese. I also have a recommendation, but it's a Chinese book as well. It's about the history of silver. The Chinese name is called Bai Ying Di Guo by Xu Dong, who is the FT Financial Times China editor. And I think what is interesting about this book is the history of how silver has actually grown and collapsed Chinese in different dynasties and also how it impacted the European economies and even US economies. And of course, the richest man in China for all ages who is known to the West as Hongkua actually lost a lot of silver into the river of Canton when his warehouses were burning. And he is able to use silver to literally use the Americans to balance against the British. 
at that point in time. So the whole thing about silver as a commodity today and as a historical currency is pretty interesting. So I highly urge if you can read Chinese, go and read this book. So how can my audience find you? You can find me on Twitter and you can find me on LinkedIn. And those are definitely the two best places, obviously on WeChat as well. And your podcast too, right? <laughs> and the podcast, yes. China Tech Talk. Yes. And this episode is edited by Caroline and co-produced by Caroline and myself. And you can definitely Google me at Bernard Leong. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast, Himalaya. And recently I just discovered that we are also on Luminary. So tweet to me if you have any feedback. And of course, we will always be giving you more and more analysis of what is really going on. So Matthew, once again, many thanks for coming on the show and I look forward to speak to you again. Thank you, Bernard.